Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody, from Buffalo. At In Social Work, we're grateful for a lot of things, but especially for the generosity of our guests, who enthusiastically share their ideas and experiences for all who are willing to listen. The creative questions and outcomes they produce enable us to share them with a really wide audience. It's easy lifting on our end, and we're really grateful for the collaboration. I'm Peter Sabota. According to our guest, Beth Cantor, network nonprofits are simple, agile, and transparent organizations that use social media to engage all kinds of people. They create these networks to shape and share their work to raise awareness of social issues, organize communities, and to improve how they provide services. Whether it's blogs, email, Twitter, or Facebook, network nonprofits use social media to make it easy for people outside their organizations to get in and for the insiders to get out. They encourage conversations between people and between people and organizations to expand their efforts easily, quickly, and relatively inexpensively. Ms. Cantor describes how network nonprofits create a social culture, build trust through transparency, and keep it simple to improve, market, and promote their mission. She also describes how nonprofits can overcome their fear of opening up and losing control thus challenging a frequent justification for their resistance to become networked. Beth Cantor is the voice behind Beth's blog, How Nonprofits Can Use Social Media. She's a busy trainer who helps organizations integrate social media, network building, and relationship marketing best practices. Ms. Cantor is the author of two books and has been named as one of the most influential women in technology by Fast Company magazine in addition to a number of other accolades. Ms. Cantor was interviewed by her own Dr. Nancy Smith, Dean and Professor and Self-Described Geek at the UB School of Social Work. Nancy interviewed Beth in September of 2014. This is Nancy Smith and I'm really pleased to have Beth Cantor here today to talk with us a little bit about social media nonprofits. So Beth, could we start with you, you use the phrase a lot, the network nonprofit, and just talk a little bit about what that means? Great, Nancy. I'm delighted to be here. So the term the network nonprofit is actually the title of my book, my two books, The Network Nonprofit and Measuring the Network Nonprofit. And network nonprofits are defined as simple, agile, and transparent organizations that allow insiders to get out and outsiders to get in. And they're experts at using social media and leveraging their networks and data to change the world. And, and so I use this as a metaphor really to say to nonprofits, you know, stop working as a single isolated institution and work more like a network, sort of embrace the abundance. And it's just a, a better way of working and it's more powerful and I think it gets better results. Okay. Can you say a little bit about who would people be networking with? Who would they be connecting to for a nonprofit? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> so as a nonprofit, you need to think about your network in terms of individuals, 
you know, real people mm-hmm. and also organizations. Now, a lot of us think about these two entities in our ecosystems, but we mostly think about them as formal relationships. So their staff, their board, mm-hmm. their volunteers, their scholars in our field, whatever, or else they're aligned partners, organizations that we have formal agreements with to work. But when we start to do our work through social networks and online, we can encounter people who are can be great assets to help us reaching our goals, but we may not already know about them. Mm-hmm. So it's thinking of both of those, both informal and formal relationships, both offline and, or as I say, on land and also online. Mm-hmm. Okay. And my guess is in all the work that you've done all over the world, you've encountered some nonprofits that really get this, that really do this well. Can you talk a little bit about some examples of organizations and maybe what they've been able to do by using this? Sure. So, you know, I categorized nonprofits as two kinds. There were those that were sort of network nonprofits naturally or by birth, and then sort of more traditional organizations that were on their way to becoming network nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And some of these sort of ones that are network nonprofits by birth, they tend to be younger organizations, not institutions that have been around for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. But one of my favorites is Moms Rising, Mm -hmm. which is a organization that was founded to make the U.S. a more family-friendly place in terms of its policies. And it was founded really to start a movement of um, moms who cared about particular issues Hmm. and would activate them around causes. So they're active in a whole wide range of issues, including healthcare reform, toxic toys, a whole host of issues. And they work in a really interesting way. They connect with individuals through their social networks, and they also work with aligned partners. They never do anything all themselves. They're always bringing in people, they're convening, and they're activating them online. Okay, so they really, from the beginning, started off doing that because it became a natural way to implement their sort of advocacy and organizing agenda. Yes, yes. So that's the natural by birth group, and then you have the institutions that have been maybe here a long time that operated with sort of old paradigms who were trying to move to this? Yes. And they move slowly. And I like to use the metaphor of crawl, walk, run, fly, and that organizations move incrementally and change from being not a network nonprofit to a network nonprofit. So at the crawl stage, we'll see organizations that may need to explore some culture change. They might need a social media policy. They might even need to think about their communication strategy, you know, what their objectives are, who the audience is. So from crawling then to walking, they start to link social with strategic outcomes. They may be measuring, doing a little bit of measuring, but through doing pilots, focus on one channel, one campaign, and they have maybe up to 20 hours of staff time doing social. Mm -hmm. To get to the running stage, they need to have a robust content strategy. They really understand how to engage their audience, how to bring them from passive observers up to champions for their cause. They have a way to experiment and learn with new platforms and new technologies. And again, doing some measurement across channels. And to get to the flying stage, this is, you know, and there's not as many flyers out there, (laughs) but, you know, they're embracing and working with free agents. They're really thinking and doing with a network mindset. They have multi-channel engagement. It's not just social. They have a whole arsenal, a way that they approach building their network, whether it's mobile, print even, email, a robust, very social website. And they have institutionalized a practice of continuous learning and reflection by measuring their results. 
Okay. That sounds like a wonderful idea. I hope we can get our school there someday. <laughs> well, it's one step at a time. Yes, Remember, absolutely. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then absolutely. walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But and keep moving forward. <laughs> absolutely. And I would imagine an organization like that is using those principles in many ways, not just in their social media. They're looking at them their entire operation. So it really does sound like a wonderful ideal for us all to strive for one step at a time. Now, let me ask you, you use the term free agents. Can you say a little bit about what a free agent is? Okay, so in my first book, The Network Nonprofit, we talked about free agents. And these are mostly individuals, mostly young people Mm -hmm. who have incredible networks. They have social networks in the palm of their hand. And those aren't traditionally the types of volunteers that institutions have embraced. But many of them are really passionate about what the organization is about, you know, whether it's an animal welfare organization or maybe it's an organization that's serving homeless and they want to help, but they also want to be in charge right. and they really want to activate their network. And so in the early days, we used to see free agents crashing into the gates of these fortress nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Now, that's changed a bit in the last couple of years. And there's actually some great examples of organizations reaching out to these free agents and empowering them as champions for their cause. Okay. Do you have an example to share? Well, one of my favorites happens to be Mark Horvath, who is known as Hardly Normal on Twitter. And he is a person, actually has had an experience of being homeless. And so he started this site called Invisible People, which really tells the story from the voice of the homeless person. He's done a lot of videos and really has traveled across America, raising consciousness about the plight of homelessness. And he partners with a lot of different agencies that are serving this population. And it's great for them because, you know, there is a lot of concern about confidentiality and you know, how can we tell the story of our clients? And I know with social workers, it puts them in this unhealthy power dynamic. Right. So partnering with someone like Mark, who's a free agent, mm-hmm. is a great way for an organization to really leverage the both the best work of both. Okay. Now, I would imagine that some organizations get nervous about partnering with free agents, some of the traditional nonprofits. Is that something you've seen at all? Yes. But here's the thing is that I'm not saying, you know, embrace anybody. And, you know, I remember I used to say this a few years ago and said, well, what if the person's crazy? Well, you're going to vet your free agents. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to just like set them free. You're going to be noticing in your networks who these people are and do they have a big network? Are they influential? Mm-hmm. And then maybe you're going to invite them to coffee. Maybe you're going to have a phone call. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're going to talk together about how you're going to work together and what the parameters are. Okay. So it's not just let them go free. Right. <laughs> there is a process, I think. And it can be applied to any kind of champion that you use, whether it's your staff or whether it's external people that you've met. You want to research who they are. It's old-fashioned desk research. Mm-hmm. You want to reach out to them. You want to develop a relationship. Mm-hmm. You want to provide them with collateral materials. And then you want to set them free. Right. And as you're talking about that, it reminds me that in my conversations with people in nonprofits about social media, people sometimes forget the set of skills that they use on land and you know offline to do all of those things, to test trust and see who a person is, that they have those skills. It's just a question of doing them partly in social platforms. And you may have the chance to meet somebody face-to-face, but you actually can really get a sense for who somebody is by looking at who they are online and how they're managing, and you can talk to them via Skype and things like that. Yeah, so. I mean, we all have social footprints, yeah. most of us. And you can always see what that person's online reputation is right. mm-hmm. and where they've commented, you know, 
you can Google them. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a really good exercise, actually, for those of you who are working out there as individual. What is your social footprint mm-hmm. and what is your reputation? Google yourself and take a look at what comes up from the perspective of an outsider. Yes. It's always an interesting exercise. Yes, at orientation, I've often asked students to go and do that. I said, now you're entering a professional program, you have a professional presence. And what you first want to see is what's your presence out on the internet now, like because your clients are going to Google you, most of them. And so go Google yourself and see what comes up. And if it turns out that there are some things up there that maybe shouldn't be up there that you want people to see, maybe you can change some privacy options. Maybe you can see if something can be taken down. But You can actually put a request in. To, to have that happen, yeah, yes. For them not to cache it. Yes. And you put that into Google itself? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's right when you go to Google, there's a, a link. See, that's a good thing for people to know. And then the best content strategy, I think I heard you call it Google bombing, is you can also create lots of positive content, content that you've put out there about yourself and sort of professional presence. And then that's going to come up, at least in the search, and maybe you bury those things that can't get taken down. So. And there's actually agencies that make a living of doing this. Yes. Reputation management. Yes, I've online. heard about that. So. <laughs> so if people really have some stuff there that may be worth employing an agency yeah. like that. And hopefully, you know, for students, they learn this early in their careers mm-hmm. that you have to think of whatever you post on the internet, even if it's a private community, you just have to treat it as it could potentially be made public. Yes. So you just have to be, you know, I'm always really careful. There's things that I don't want the world to know, and right. that's kept offline. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I used to talk to my clients about using the idea of a megaphone. If it's not something that you would say in a megaphone, like in a crowded place to a bunch of people, maybe you don't want to put it online. <laughs> you know, because those privacy protections can malfunction or maybe I don't understand them well or somebody can copy it and share it. And so there's a lot of possibilities. There's that. And then there's just also anything that you are putting out that you may think might be harmless. People can see your social stream and develop an opinion about you. Maybe you're traveling on a business trip and you're taking some pictures of where you're going and maybe it's someone could say, oh, they're never working. They're always eating out when they're on a trip. Yes. And develop an opinion. So if you want to live a life online as a professional, I believe really you have to carefully craft your persona and your personal brand. It has to be authentic. Yes. So it doesn't look like it's totally crafted. Yeah. I mean, you curate it. Yes. And it doesn't mean that you have to hide things that make you human. Right. You know, I'm thinking about Carolyn Miles from Save the Children. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at her Twitter stream, she's always tweeting about her work, not in the same voice that the organizational brand does, but in her own authentic voice, her site visits, the photographs, you know, where she's speaking. And occasionally you'll see a tweet about a walk on the beach, or I know she's a gardener because she finds gardening as a way to revitalize and have self-care for herself. Right. Because her job is really, can be difficult. So having someone like that who's heading up an organization tweeting in that way complements the organizational strategy for content development. Yes, yes, especially if it's really intentional. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some where sort of disconnected from the strategy, and then there's others where it's really aligned. And what I think about is how the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is doing it with their culture of health strategy, is that they're really encouraging some of their program officers and their communications people really to have personal brands, Mm -hmm. be authentic, and to talk about their work, but also talk about what makes them human. You can actually see an example of this. If you go up to the brand page, you can actually see a Twitter list of all socially engaged staff. 
at Robert Wood Johnson. Yes, oh, yeah. that, they're a great role model in this. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll have to check that out. You mentioned Save the Children before, and I'm aware from just things that I've seen online that they were successful in pulling out, what is it, a 12-hour Twitter chat over 12 zones or something? Some organizations are really using this strategically to really get their name and presence out there. Yeah, I just participated in a Twitter chat for Points of Light for their startup accelerator. Mm -hmm. And so they have this civic engagement startup accelerator, and it's very competitive to get into, and then 25 organizations are approved. And so to announce it, they got 25 different influencers who would agree to tweet at a particular time and announce one of their picks for the accelerator. I thought it was really great because they were leveraging 25 different people's networks. And they paired them with the person that, you know, it seemed like this interest might interest your network. Mm-hmm. And then there was a lot of retweeting and interaction. So I thought it was a really brilliant strategy to announce a new program. Okay. Yeah, that's actually intriguing. Mm-hmm. The idea of identifying the influencers in the circles that are important to you anyway. And it's not voodoo black magic either yeah. to do that. It's really paying attention to your network, checking them out, looking at their cloud score, getting it in a spreadsheet, and then looking at alignment towards your goals. Does mm-hmm. this influencer have a community that really aligns with your goals? Mm-hmm. Now, what happens is most of us think, oh, we need Oprah or we need a celebrity. But a celebrity might have a big audience, but it may not be the right mm-hmm. alignment. So I hear two things there. One is you want to have a goal about for how you're using social media channel. As a nonprofit, you want to think about what you're trying to achieve and then really looking at your data about what you're uh, doing to see if it's having the desired impact and then learning from that in some way. Yes. I mean, always be learning <laughs> is my mantra. Okay. And that's why I wrote the book on measurement, even though I flunked math. Don't tell anybody. And I was allergic to spreadsheets. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, God, no. And I really thank my co-author, Katie Payne, for kind of like showing me the magic around measurement because it really wasn't about the math. It's really about the learning. So if you set some goals and you have particular metrics that you can measure, Mm -hmm. it's not just about the numbers, but you can start to see patterns. And then the patterns come into certain insights that you can apply back to your work and get better at what you're doing. Okay. So could you give an example, like a specific example of a nonprofit and how they managed to achieve some specific successes taking this approach, whether it be raising money or volunteers or whatever? Okay, so I think one of the best organizations out there, nonprofits that doing is doing this, is DoSomething.org. Mm-hmm. And I talk about them a lot. I think in Chapter 3 of my second book, they were the lead case study mm-hmm. for an organization being data-informed. And I have to give credit to their CEO, Nancy Loveland, who is their chief old person on staff. <laughs> and I should back up for a moment and say that the organization's mission is to get teens active in online social change campaigns mm-hmm. to get them to volunteer, to donate, or to advocate around particular causes. And so all of their work is really online campaign based. And so her board said to her, you know, lose your gut. <laughs> you always have to ask, what does the data say? Mm-hmm. And so she's put into place a system where she has data scientists and for every campaign they have metrics wow. and they track it and they have a lot of learning. And so my favorite example of theirs is a internet app that they launched to help avoid the problem of animals being killed in kill shelters. And part of the reason that was happening is that a lot of these shelters, small nonprofits, weren't posting enough cute cat pictures on the internet. Right. And so they developed this app that teens could download 
and it would guide them to the nearest shelter and so they could go in they could take pictures post them on social channels or they could go into the shelter and volunteer or they could donate dog food or cat food to the shelter mm -hmm. so when they launched this program they launched it on the today show and kathy lee gifford dropped a puppy on its head it wasn't <laughs> no. her it wasn't her but i was actually in their office when this happened and the data scientists got up, left the room, and they went into this room with their monitor, and they were looking at the landing page for the app, because what had happened was a blogger wrote about Kathy Lee dropping the puppy on its head, oh. and then linked to the landing page, and so they were going in to look at what is the conversion rate, and while they were looking at it, they were like brainstorming ideas about how to make the landing page better. Okay, so the conversion rate is what? The number of people that clicked on a link after reading this article about Kathy Lee dropping the puppy on her And clicked through. Clicked through to the app landing page okay. where they could download the app. So how many people actually clicked through, saw it, and left? And how many actually clicked through and downloaded the app? So that's their first rung on the ladder of engagement. Okay. So the next rung is then once they download the app, do they actually use it? Are they using it to go into a shelter and take pictures? Are right. pictures being distributed and shared on social networks? Okay. Now, the next level up is, are they going into the shelter and are they volunteering? Right. Are they going into the shelter and actually donating something? So mm -hmm. they were tracking each one of these metrics and then figuring out in their messaging strategy or in the way that a landing page was set up, what do we need to tweak to make it better? Wow, okay. And this is something, it sounds like amazing, but it takes many years to develop your spreadsheet and your model. I would imagine. And um, then it's just a continuous process, really. Yeah, because I had a chance to interview Eric Lee Reese mm -hmm. with the Lean Startup, and that's where a lot of these methods come from. Okay. It's kind of like think, do, measure, repeat. <laughs> Excellent. You know, yeah. and the one metric that matters. And I asked him, I said, you know, it's so hard to find the one metric that matters. There's really, it's a, a constellation of metrics. So how do you, like, build your spreadsheet? And that was the answer he gave me. It's an art and a science. It takes a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So how often do you think people should be looking at their data? If I have a campaign underway, should I be looking at it every day? or? Well, it depends. But I think, like, for a lot of nonprofits, the workflow is really going to be a monthly editorial calendar to okay. post on different channels. So you want to have that data fresh right. at the end of each month and looking when you're planning for the next month. Unless uh, there's something going on like breaking news that we're involved yeah, in. Yeah, or, or, or a campaign that's right in the thick of it and okay. you want like real-time data. Okay. Data is like bread. It's best when it's fresh and out of the oven. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> So as I'm thinking about network nonprofits and people moving in this direction, I think that one of the things that scares people about opening up their organizations so much and being so transparent and involving all these partners has to do with control and this sense of all sorts of things could happen. People could make negative comments, you know. What do you make of all of that? What do you say to people about that? Well, the first thing is, if you're afraid of giving up control, as Clay Shirky famously said, forget it, you've already lost control, okay? <laughs> yes. So, so don't waste energy on trying to control. You're not going to do it. Now, what scares people is giving up control. <laughs> I say share control. Okay. And in order to share control, you need a social media policy that lays out the rules. Right. Because I think a lot of the fear comes from not having thought through some of those issues. Mm -hmm. To your question about a negative comment, well, okay, so let's analyze what is a negative comment and who is making these negative comments. So you have trolls. They're professional negative comment makers, and they <laughs> exist just to waste your time and energy and get you frustrated. And so good 
you know, social media people know who all the trolls are and they ignore them. They're like bad children. We just ignore them. Because trolls thrive on attention. Right. So don't feed the trolls. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so first you understand that. The next level up, a negative comment, well, that could be a complaint about something, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, we're not all perfect, as much as our organizations like to think like we to, are. They like to hope, yes. Okay, so a negative comment, okay, is it a real complaint or is it a perception of a complaint? If it's a real complaint, get your customer service chops out and say, thank you so much, we're going to look into that. If it's a perception, address the perception because other people are going to be reading it. Mm-hmm. I think what some social service agencies get really concerned about, what if somebody posts a comment that's going to violate a client's confidentiality? Oh my God, yes, that's, I know that could be a professional violation. That could be horrible. But okay, and it might happen. And if you have a social media policy, you have the procedure to go through to address the problem. Yeah. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's good advice. I mean, I, I think about, I had a personal situation come up when I put my cat to sleep earlier this year with the health department in New York State. They have a Facebook page. And they had some things about the policy which were really, really very bad. And I won't get into details so I don't traumatize listeners. But I was really concerned about people who might have mental health issues and the impact of this policy. So I went onto their Facebook page and wrote a long piece of, post and it was a fairly professional balance post and just said you know this policy well I know you're doing it for public health reasons there are ways you could retool this policy to, so it doesn't do harm in the meantime so what was the policy well the policy has to do with rabies and it okay. turns out that if an animal bites a person and then the animal can't be kept alive for 10 days which is the period they watch for rabies that the animal has to be rabies tested and the only way to do that is to basically remove the head of an animal. Uh-huh. So in this case, it was a pet who was fully up to date on rabies shots, indoors, had been very sick and probably to the vets multiple times for pancreatitis mm-hmm. and things. The vet knew that this animal didn't have rabies. I knew the animal didn't. But because the animal was in so much pain when he was being brought to the vet, he bit me. And that's when I found out about the policy. And I was not happy about the fact that my cat was now going to be dismembered for this testing. But, you know, I dealt with it, but I was really concerned because I have lots of former clients. I'm not in practice anymore, but I know a lot of people who their animals, that kind of thing could send somebody over the edge. I could see somebody who has significant mental health problems finding that out, being very upset and potentially suicidal. And and since then, I've actually had people come forward and share stories with me that have confirmed that. So I was basically saying to them, you know, that... There are ways they could do this so that people are not treated so impersonally in the process and there was no recognition that you might have a relationship to the animal, a variety of things. And so they really just need a checkbox in their database to say this animal is a pet and belongs to somebody so that their responses are keyed up so that they are a little more humane in their responses, really. And then I had questions about whether I could get the remains returned to me. and So all of that I'm laying out on the Facebook page. Well... You know, I have a fairly large network. Lots of people left comments. I mean, they had probably 80-some-odd comments online. they didn't reply? Well, not only did they not reply right away, they shut down the part of their page where people can make posts, so they hid the post. Well, then I got annoyed at that. (laughs) And everybody's like, oh, great, you're so transparent. You're now hiding feedback that people give you. So then they got a ton of comments about that. So five days later, they did finally reply. <laughs> it was pretty clear that they were not ready to handle this. And they weren't ready for the idea that you don't 
hide things like that because then yeah. you just annoy people. Yeah. And so it was just sort of the kind of example that makes it pretty clear. People just sort of throw pages like that and some poor soul who was responding who probably has nothing to do with the policy. And I think I even said that in my response. I realize this isn't your policy. You're just communicating. But there's somebody there who does, and it would be great if you pass this feedback on, and I'd even be willing to consult with them on developing what I call a trauma-informed policy, a policy that would actually be more humane and less likely to create a mental health crisis in the process of doing this. And of course, they never took me up on that. That, that offer would stand, but it really was like, okay, you know, I get totally where the policy came from. It's just one of these unintended consequences and not thinking through the other end of it and involving recipients in designing your policy. And that's precisely what I think needs to be rethought is that comments are data and it's like having the world's biggest free focus group and why wouldn't you want to hear from your audience about how to make your programs better? Right, and that's part of why you said there's sort of transparency in using that data as part of your organization is part of a network nonprofit. And so I would say, in this case, a health department probably doesn't qualify for that definition because they haven't thought through how to work that into their change processes. But you would think that would be useful information to an organization. Yeah. And uh, the law hasn't been in effect very long in our state. I predict at some point there will be probably some awful thing that happens to somebody as a result of this. And then, of course, you get policy that gets made based on a single case, which isn't always a good idea. But I just sort of use that as an example because I think that that idea of you know, hiding comments, shutting it down, then just was sort of spurred off a whole other reaction to them because people got very angry about that. And well, I mean, but here's another example of how an organization has handled this. So I don't want to say the name, but they work in children's issues. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're a policy group that covers anything that affects the welfare of children across, you know, whether it's childhood obesity, health care, a whole set of other issues. So on their page, somebody who was identified as a troll posted, I forget exactly, but it had to do with abortion. Mm-hmm. And it was completely off topic. Right. And their policy was to keep things at the top of the page. Yeah. But what they did is they went out to their network and they said, we got kind of this off topic post, but we're not going to take it down. But can you just post something so we can move this further down so when people come to our page, that's not the first thing they see. And they have a pretty big network and within like, you know, an hour or two, 20 other people had posted stuff on their page and moved it down. What a great response. But if it was a post that was probably saying something about their policy, they would have responded. Right, but there was no response to this because it was off topic. and Right, an identified troll. Right. So it was another way of ignoring the troll. Yeah, and yet they didn't remove it. That's interesting because I know a lot of places would have felt free to remove it because it wasn't really related well, to what they were doing. Well, if you know your trolls, sometimes trolls have networks too and then they come back. So it was kind of a way to deal with it. Good, without, good best practice without, for that. Without poking the bee's nest, yes, so to speak. Yeah. There's a lot we can learn from the animal rights people. Yes. Um, Humane Society. Carrie Lewis, I've learned so much from her about troll management. And she <laughs> talks a lot about, about anger management, that you, as the person who's on the front line, you have to be like really careful and you have to understand when you're getting really pissed. Right. And Because that's what they want. Right. And as soon as you provoke them, then it escalates. Right. Right, and so it's a, probably a good general rule that if you're really pissed, it's not the time to make a comment. Right, and to and understand how it's affecting you yes, and, and yeah. to like close it yeah. and step back. Yeah. And she actually keeps a spreadsheet of trolls. Huh. She knows who they are and, oh, this person again. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've had an experience on my blog where I posted, it was when I was supposed to go to Tunisia, and it was when the embassy was attacked 
around the same time yeah. Mia, and so our trip was canceled because it just wasn't safe to go and so I posted this whole thing about why it wasn't safe to go and I was also talking about some of the conversation that was happening on Twitter and I actually had a troll post who used it as an occasion to talk about I forget whether it was pro-Palestine or pro-Israel I, I mean I didn't want to get into the politics but it was like a ridiculous kind of comment and I said Oh, okay. And I didn't really, it was a new person commenting. I looked at who they were. They said, oh, there's this person who's very ardent about a certain point of view. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of, thank, thank you so much for your comment. Right? And that's it. You sort of acknowledge it and then shut up. And, right. And then, of course, they came back and started posting several different responses. And at that point, I just didn't respond. Okay. So that's the first thing. If you don't know they're a troll and you just kind of think they could be a troll, this is a new one, you sort of say, thank you so much for posting your opinion. It's kind of neutral. And if it escalates from there, then it's like, ignore. Okay. And then he got tired and he went away. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the kinds of fears people have. And just really thinking through, this is how we're going to manage it, and this is how other people have managed it, can really help people start to get a sense for, okay, we can manage this, well, it's not quite so. And especially if they have the presence and they've been building relationships and mm-hmm. built their community before they need it, then the community can come and manage it as well. That yeah. happens a lot. Yes. Well, I think that that's probably the biggest fear you hear from people. And then, of course, in social work organizations that have clients, it's the protected information piece. And, I, and, and of course, I mean, I mean, you probably have examples of where there's somebody, something messed up or somebody posted some information that violates a HIPAA policy or right. something. So what does the agency do? What has happened? Well, right. I mean, I can tell you is that the ones that I'm aware of, and we've had situations occasionally where students have put stuff up on their Facebook pages that were... I don't know if it was an actual violation, but it was definitely not a good it was, idea. It was getting close. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Where I would contact them, them directly and say, you know, by the way, this is not okay. You really need to change this, you know, remove it, whatever. And it, an educational process and usually, and then take it down. If it actually appeared on our page, we would remove it because we do have a community policy for those things. But oftentimes it's about educating. In this case, it was a student who later said, you know, I've been thinking about my Facebook wall just as a place I can say things, and I forget it's the equivalent of a whiteboard on the door of my room in a dorm. And I thought, that's probably not a bad analogy. You're putting it there, and everybody who can walk past can see it. And so there was an educational process. did anything bad happen to the... (laughs) Did you get sued? Did Not in that case, no, no. Did you have... And I haven't ever heard of any of those bad things Did you have your 501c3 taken away? No, nothing. (laughs) Your licensing, yeah. So SWAT team did not emerge and and take us all out. (laughs) So I think, like, we imagine all these fears. I'm not saying disregard privacy or HIPAA, because I know that's really important, and we respect that, we honor that. But the world is not perfect, and people are going to make mistakes. Yes. Things are going to happen. If you have the policy in place that protects you, you have to look at it as a way to educate people. Right. And in the end, probably nothing super horribly bad will happen. Right. And... What's the loss if you're not engaging? Right. You know? The lost opportunities, the lost partnerships. I mean, I think... Lost revenue. (laughs) Yes, the lost revenue, depending on how you're using things. And uh, I will say that our school, by having a presence in Twitter and having Facebook, we've had new partnerships develop with people all around the world, actually, that we never would have had if we weren't in these places. So it's a lost opportunity, and not just for our organization, but then for our students. To me, that's worth it, to be able to have those possible opportunities and then find ways to manage what the concerns are because everything in life has risks and benefits to it. Walking down the stairs, you know, has risks and benefits. 
So you just have to think a little bit about how you're going to manage those. And the other thing that comes up a lot on Facebook pages, not as much on ours, but I do think happens sometimes is, is you'll have a particular student get into an issue that's so individualized or you get a client who'll do that. And then you just need to say, you know, let me call you, let me follow up so Let's I can take really this give to you yeah, private channels. Private channels and I can really give you the individualized attention that you deserve on this. So that people aren't sometimes getting into things that they're not gonna wanna get into either. I did hear a case, I think it was a former employee who then started to post on the page and share information that was inappropriate. Oh, okay. So they had to take some legal action. Mm-hmm. Because clearly it was a violation of confidentiality rules that they had signed as an employee. And I think also they might have been fired. I mean, it was a whole kind of situation. So they were posting things on the Facebook page. They banned the user. Right. And they had to take some offline legal action, Mm -hmm. which was sort of a pain, yeah. But it's not worth shutting down your whole Facebook page. Right. Right. It's something that can be managed. And that was the worst bad thing that I had heard of. I mean, I'm sure... Other things will happen. <laughs> There's always some bad that can happen. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I do in uh, planning sessions with clients, we have a what's the worst thing that could happen brainstorm session. Yes, really imagine it. <laughs> and it's really liberating. Mm-hmm. And we just make a list. And then it's like, okay, so we need to think this through. Mm-hmm. And then I also do a debriefing meeting at the end. And my favorite question, well, did any of these... I bring back actual literal flip charts that we make. Uh. Or I photograph them and put them on a PowerPoint slide. Did any of these things actually happen? Mm-hmm. And then people <laughs> get to say, oh, no, I guess... Yeah. I mean, part of it is people just have fear around new things. And if they're not comfortable with this platform, the fear really needs to be articulated and really imagined all the possibilities to see it's maybe not as bad as it has felt to me. Right. You have to wallow in the fear yeah. Yeah. before you can yes. get to contemplation. Yes. And that's, action. by the way, a very good therapeutic technique around dealing with fears. There's a technique called worry exposure for people that worry a lot about things. And what cognitive behavioral treatment will say is that the problem is you're worrying incompletely. You're only hitting the top of the worry and you're not thinking the whole thing through. So then you say, well, I'm worried that I'm gonna lose my job. And you say, well, okay. So when you worry about that, you just worry and then you keep going in circles with your fear and instead saying, okay, so let's say you did lose your job. Then what would happen? And you just keep saying, and then what would happen? And then what would happen? You just bring the person through the whole experience. I mean, at some point they come out on the other end and life goes on. They think about coping skills. They think about how they deal with that situation. And it interrupts that cycle of fear. So I know some people who could use that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, feel free to adapt it. It sounds like you've already stumbled into pieces of it in, in terms of social media. But yeah, it works really well to actually reduce anxiety that goes with chronic worrying. And I do think people worry about social media. A lot of people in not-for-profits who are not even at the crawl stage yet. Yeah, that's and, what keeps them there. Yes. Fear. It is, the only thing we have to fear is, is fear, fear itself. itself. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think that I like your way of getting people to articulate and, and really imagine what is the worst possible thing. And then, okay, so let's say that happened. What would you do? What would happen? But typically what people imagine is not as bad as it felt. So I like that. I really want to say here that your blog is awesome. You have oh, thank the you. <laughs> most amazing resources there, and I would really strongly encourage anyone interested in this topic, use of social media and nonprofits, to go and check it out. And don't just look at the current posts, so that they're great, because you just have an amazing amount of information. I've been archived. blogging for 13 years. So, okay, yeah. so and you've got archives, and then you have a wiki connected to your blog, yeah, right? Yes, so it's all linked on the side. Okay. And I also curate over at Scoop It, okay. which is a curation platform. So if you Google scoop.it, K 
decanter. Yeah. You'll see that I have 10 different topics that I'm looking at. I do the social media and nonprofits. I'm looking at data, mm -hmm. data visualization, crowdfunding, failure, yes. learning from failure, and networked leadership skills. Okay. On all this curation, you're probably thinking, oh my God, information overload. But I am actually, I only curate information because I do a lot of teaching and instruction and writing. So it's all curated with a purpose. Well, right. And, you know, one of the things people ask me constantly is, you know, how do you find the time to stay up with these things? And I say, well, I do it by finding other people who are doing the work for me. So I know that if I follow and look at what you're doing, I can stay up to date on what's important in that and what's coming up online and what other people are doing and you find a couple of what I consider key informants people on the topics that are important I call it my circle of the wise okay. <laughs> that's excellent yeah so I really would encourage people to check out your blog and follow you on Twitter and your blog is just Beth Cantor Dot org. Dot org, right? So people can, but honestly, if you just put your name in there and search Google, it comes right up. Yeah. No, well, right. You used to be able to just Google the word Beth, and I was number one, and then <laughs> Kiss released a, a video called Kiss Beth. Oh, right. Now that's number one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty easy to find, and I do think that going into the space of being a network nonprofit, or even if you just simply work in this area and you want to stay up to date yourself, if your organization's not quite there yet, there's an amazing amount of resources that have already been developed and people don't have to reinvent the wheel and you just have some great resources there. I also share, I mean, I do a lot of my content curation for practical social media information mm -hmm. is on my Facebook page as well, mm -hmm. so which is Facebook slash Beth.Canter.blog. Okay. Over the years of measuring the content that works, I've developed now and doing a lot of analysis on what are the patterns, what resonates, I now have this like formula that I know that I can pluck out the things that people really want. Yeah. That is, nonprofits who are looking for practical information about how to use social media effectively. And that's yeah. where I share that. I also do some sharing around that on Twitter as okay. well. Okay. Well, thanks for taking the time to explain a little bit about these concepts, hoping that listeners will be interested enough to go check out your blog and some of the other great work that you do. Oh, great. I'd love to hear from social workers. Thank you so much. <laughs> thanks. Take care. You've been listening to Beth Cantor discuss network nonprofits on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.